Hi there, Duke fans. Welcome to episode 417 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It's our midweek pod in the week of guys declaring for the NBA draft. I guess kind of a bittersweet time of year for Blue Devil fans. We are bidding goodbye to some guys, but we're getting some hints. We're getting some thoughts, some ideas that some guys that might have turned pro may instead be coming back to Durham. We're going to get to all that stuff. And wow, just some huge news going on in the world of college basketball. Before we do any of that, I am Jason Evans. I am hosting this week, uh, as and as I quite frequently am, I'm joined by my colleagues, Donald Wine and Sam Klein. Sam, how are you doing this morning? I am doing pretty good. I am headed to D.C. this weekend to hang out with family, go to some Nationals games, and confirmed yesterday, I'll get to see Donald Wine, at least for a few minutes on Saturday. So that is exciting. Yeah, Donald, your turn. How are you feeling this morning about Sam coming to visit you? <laughs> I feel great. I feel great. I might, I, I'm going to try and figure out a way to get to the uh, Nets game that he's going to, but I'm going to the DC United game right afterwards. So uh, there'll be some nice overlap time for us to hang out, but I am also excited for on baseball news for just a second. Uh, hopefully today, as we record on Thursday, April 21st, hopefully Miguel Cabrera will get number 3000 this afternoon against the Yankees. So go Mickey go on the topic of baseball, transitioning to the topic of basketball. Last night, I went to the Red Sox-Blue Jays game, which was going on in Boston, down the street, effectively, from where the Celtics were playing the Nets in the playoffs, a game which maybe we'll get to talk about for a couple minutes because uh, prominently featured some, some Duke players. But uh, I can, and, and I can, some Duke coaches. I can report that, yes, I can report that at the – yeah, exactly. I, I saw that uh, that Coach K and John Shire were uh, – And Emil were, Jefferson. At, Emil were, was were there all, with them as well. They were all at the Celtics game last night. Uh, I made the mistake of going to the Red Sox game, but everybody else who made the same mistake as I did was standing in the concourse watching the Celtics game on the TV. So uh, it, was, it, was, it was a cool night for baseball, but it was a great night for basketball yesterday. Yeah, you can consider that a deep tease, so to speak. I, as folks know, I'm in the television business, and uh, we call that a deep tease because what Sam was talking about there, the Dukies in the NBA playoffs, is something we're going to get to in a little while. But up first, gentlemen, uh, we, we, let's talk about the NBA. Actually, you know what? Check that. I've changed my mind. I know we were going to talk about, and we're going to talk about, you know, Mark Williams, Paula Bancaro, all the NBA stuff. But before we do any of that, guys, we were hit with a, a thunderbolt last night. Let's just it's super quick. It's not a Duke thing, but it affects all of college basketball. Jay Wright of Villanova. You know, I think if you're making a list of the five best coaches in the game, absolutely no question he's on it. In fact, if you're making a list of the three best coaches in the game, he's almost certainly on it. Uh, Jay Wright shocked the world and, and is retiring at the age of 60. We just saw Coach K bow out just before his 80th birthday. And here's Jay Wright doing it at the age of 60, leaving Villanova. Uh, you know, I, I, I'll just, you know, Sam, I'll go to you first. Just, you know, a quick, like, it, it was really, really surprising. Yes, very surprising. We don't typically see a big-time head coaches retire this young. But on the flip side, uh, I'll, I'll give my, my personal assessment, which is if you have the cash to retire at 60 or the the cash to retire at 50 or whatever, man, power to you. Jay Wright has been on this college basketball grind for a long time. He's had a lot of success at Villanova, especially in recent years. Uh, finally, finally broke through, won a national championship, and then just for good measure, won a second one two years later. So uh, an awesome career for him. One of the very few coaches who's ever won multiple national championships, retires a legend at Villanova and a legend in the sport. So uh, I'm happy for him, even if I'm, I'm very surprised because it sort of felt like he was going to take the mantle as the, the, the top dog in college basketball with, with Coach K and Roy Williams gone. So uh, it, it potentially shakes up the, uh, it shakes up the Big East, not that we're, we're going to talk extensively about the Big East. And it also is you know, an, another, uh, another Hall of Fame coach who has retired from the sport in recent years. He'd done so much for college basketball. And, and one of those coaches that, was successful without being, you know, at the pinnacle until most recently uh, when he won two national championships for Villanova, but he was always right there in the conversation for best coaches. And I will say this, he is without a doubt the best dress coach in college basketball uh, until the, until COVID era ushered us into the business casual era for coaches. That man was in a suit 
that was very expensive every single night. And that man rocked it every single time. So, uh, but when it comes to his coaching, I, I think college basketball will miss it because he made Villanova, which isn't a big school. Uh, you know, Jason, I know you're, oh, no. your kid yeah. went, went down the street, but like Villanova is not a big school whatsoever, but they had been a power in the eighties. And then they kind of disappeared off the scene and, and Jay Wright brought them back to prominence uh, again, two national championships probably should have won a couple of more. Um, he had teams that were that good and, and really just one of the best coaches that college basketball had out there. So it was very surprising to see him retire, but I'm happy that he is able to walk away from the game on his own terms and wish him luck with the, with, with retirement and whatever else is next for him. I think honestly, like if he wants to do TV or something like that, he would be a great addition uh, to any broadcast that he would be on. So let me say this about Jay, right? First of all, Donald, you're absolutely right. Villanova, Villanova was a, a notable program, mostly because of Roly Massimino and because they, they sort of snuck their way to, a, they had a huge upset to win a national title in 1984, I think was the 85, 85. Okay. My memory isn't as good as it used to be. I remember watching that game. You guys probably don't remember watching it. I remember watching it. I was not alive. <laughs> I yet. watched, that was one of the first, actually, I had, that was the first one I saw highlights for the first basketball game, college basketball game that I watched uh, was a Michigan game. But the first like national championship was 86, you know, Duke Louisville. So I do remember that one. Um, but yeah, that was the the upset over fly, fly slam a jamma um, in the national championship game. The, the thing about Jay Wright, I was going to say is, you know, Villanova had that moment uh, in the eighties and they were good under Massimino but he took them to a whole different level. And to me, it's really surprising that a guy would go out, you know, literally at the top of the game. It, it, like Roy Williams and, and Coach K retiring in the past, you know, year, if you sort of looked at, if you went, okay, what is the best decade? What's the best 10 years that either one of them had? It wasn't the past 10 years. Not that, you know, look, obviously Coach K's won a, won a title in the past 10 years, Roy Williams as well. But if you sort of look at, Okay, when were they absolutely on top of their game as the, uh, you know, the, the best stretch of their career? It wasn't when they retired. I think Jay Wright is right now in the best stretch of his career. Over the past seven years, dude's made, dude's won multiple national titles and he's just coming off a of final four. I mean, to, to retire at this moment is, is kind of shocking. And, and I heard an amazing stat a year ago at this time there were five guys who had multiple national titles, five coaches who'd won more than one national title in division one basketball. They're now only two bill self and Rick Pitino are the only ones left because and bill self just won one. Yeah. Oh, so he yeah. wasn't in that conversation. He wasn't so in that conversation. Right. Exactly. Half, you know, three weeks ago. All right. So uh, 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 enough on Jerry, unless you guys got anything else, let's, let's, this is the Duke basketball report. <laughs> let's, let's get to the Dukies. And we had two Blue Devils uh, declare for the NBA draft um, already. And, and we're recording this in the morning on, uh, on the 21st, on Thursday morning. It is possible, nay, even probable, <laughs> that by the time you listen to this, there will be other Dukies who will have joined them. But uh, both Mark Williams and Paulo Bancaro declared. We also got a report that Wendell Moore um, had pretty much completely the athletic Brendan Marks and the athletic friend of the podcast who has great sources uh, at Duke and, and really covers the team as well as anybody. He reported that Wendell Moore is, is ready to declare. Um, and, and we, we fully expect that, that AJ Griffin will as well. Uh, so guys, before we move on to the decisions that are so, still sort of up in the air, I, I want to first talk mostly about Mark and Paulo and let me frame it for you this way. And this is not an easy conversation, but let's start with this one. Paulo Bancaro. And I want, I want to ask, where does he rank among the all-time great Duke one and done players? I don't think he's the best, but he's in the conversation right after. I, I think Zion Williamson is, is the best one and done player Duke's ever had. Paulo's in the conversation right after him, isn't he, Sam? Absolutely. Uh, and and I, I know we had a conversation like this recently, but there haven't been uh, there haven't been that many of the one and dones at Duke that have been, you know, the consensus all well, the consensus all American. You've got uh, you've got a handful of those guys, but guys who really took over the team the way that Paulo did. I, I think that um, maybe he falls, you know, as you said, maybe he falls short of Zion Williamson, a uh, couple other all like 
big time All Americans that Duke had: Marvin Bagley, R.J. Barrett, Jalil Okafor was nearly National Player of the Year. Uh, we we have been pretty spoiled with uh, with these one and done guys, but but Paulo Bancaro, I think, showed up uh, one of the most mature players that that we have seen from a Duke guy and and he had his struggles this season there were times where he kind of lost a shot he wasn't in the flow of the offense he he still has a fair bit to learn on the defensive end and and I'm sure that he's going to be working on that uh, leading up to the draft and then and then over the summer leading into his first NBA season but um, but man, the level of maturity and, and confidence that he brought was really astounding. And I think he's, he is in many ways, the modern player, uh, he, he can score everywhere. He's enormous, um, really mobile, really active. And, uh, we are going to miss, you know, I'm, I'm really excited for, uh, for next year's roster to see Derek Lively and Kyle Filipowski playing together, but, uh, we are going to miss Paulo Bancaro at times next season when Duke needs to get a rebound. Duke needs to push the ball up the floor. Duke needs to uh, to take a difficult shot. That is a guy that um, that we're going to remember for a long time. The the, the way I feel on Paulo, I'm with you. I think that he probably falls in uh, clearly behind Zion, behind RJ, behind Jalil, and behind Marvin Bagley. But but he's that that's really impressive company to be in. And he's just a notch behind those guys. He may not have been quite as consistent as, as those players. And, and I think he didn't, by the way, and Brandon Ingram may be close to in that conversation as well. Jason, wait, real quick. Remember when Duke like couldn't produce a big man to, to, to save the program? <laughs> right. <laughs> All the guys you just rattled off, the smallest one I think is Brandon Ingram. Right. You're right. You're right. I, the thing I would say about Paulo that, that impressed me throughout this year was this was not a guy who I looked at and, and had tremendous physical gifts. I mean, seems a little silly to say that about, about a dude who's 6'10 and, and 240 pounds and, and, and carries all that with, with ease. But he wasn't, he wasn't a, a, a true athletic freak, you know, not in the way that, that a Zion was. Um, but uh, the, the degree of skill that he showed with the ball in his hands were, was, was really impressive. And, and I'm not sure, I don't think there's been anyone his size at Duke who had this kind of skill. I'm not talking about necessarily shooting three-pointers, but his ability to put the ball on the floor um, and, and, and create opportunities for himself was, was truly, truly special. Uh, and, you know, the guy's going to be missing. I think the guy's going to be great at the next level. I agree. And I think when you're talking about the one and done era, I think there's a couple of tiers, right? I think there's the Zion RJ tier. And I think he's just below that in the tier with, as you mentioned, Jalil Okafor, uh, Marvin Bagley. Honestly, for me, I know it was only eight games, but I throw Kyrie's uh, career at Duke into that category because it, it more is so hard. Potential. It's so hard. It's to so hard Kyrie. to judge that. Yeah. yeah. It's so hard to judge that. But I will say this about Paulo. The one thing that I loved about him is that he entered college with the expectations of a guy because people were basically talking about on that summer circuit before he got to, arrived at Duke that he was going to play NBA players and former NBA players and was destroying all of them, right? Like, it wasn't that they're saying, oh, he was holding his own. They were saying this man was dominating elite pros in summer leagues and stuff like that. And this guy came and every single day he worked to get better. There was obviously parts of his game that I think came along a lot better than I, I even I expected to. He learned every single day. Even when he had a bad game, it was very rare that he made the same mistake twice. He learned from his mistakes. It was clear that he absorbed as much information as he could from Coach K and the coaching staff and really just you know embraced being at Duke and wanting to take them as far as possible. And he got to within a breath of, of the national championship game. And I think that he, his legacy, I think, will forever be cemented because of not just his game, but the way that he improved from the time he stepped on campus to the time he left. That man literally was improving every single day, learning from his mistakes and trying to be the best player that he could be for Duke, not just for himself. So uh, I really appreciate that about Paulo Bancaro. And I think he's in that second tier. Like I mentioned, I think RJ and Zion are in a level above everyone. And then right below that is that second tier. And I think that's where Paulo slots in. You're underselling Jaleel for, but <laughs> I, 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 have, I, want... I have Jaleel in that second tier. I have Jaleel in that second tier, but like, I, I, I still think that that it, 
it, it, call it personal bias, but 2019 is one of the greatest teams I've ever seen. And, and that, and those two guys are a good reason for that. Okay. Well, I, I want to focus on something else you talked about, Donald, which was how much guys improve because they're, they're, it, it is hard to find a guy who's improved as much as Mark Williams in two years. I mean, wow. Mark Williams, you know, also declared for the NBA draft. Most folks are now saying that he is probably going to go late lottery, maybe a little beyond there, maybe mid lottery. Uh, I, I think, you know, a lot of teams can be very intrigued by, by Mark Williams length and rim protection, but folks, I, I want everyone to remember there was a time just last season, middle of last season where Mark Williams couldn't even get on the floor for this Duke team. Uh, he would, he would quite often, he was starting games, I think primarily so he could win the opening tip. <laughs> and then, you know, he's playing like 10 minutes and, and really not having much of an impact. And Duke was very quickly replacing him with guys significantly smaller. And uh, I, I thought Mark Williams was going to be at Duke for four years because I thought he was going to struggle to see the floor. And, and then he exploded late in the season. Remember, he was incredibly dominant in the ACC tournament. Uh, you know, if, if COVID hadn't taken Duke out, I feel like Duke had a chance to really advance in that tournament. And, and Mark Williams was one of the major, major reasons why. And then this year, he, there's little question in my mind, among all the centers, all the guys who've played center, all the rim protectors in Duke history, he's second only to Sheldon Williams, in my opinion. And, you know, not, not the greatest offensive player. You know, if we're ranking the all-time great centers, I think that it, it's hard to overlook the fact that Duke didn't run plays for Mark very much. He was very efficient, but but we didn't count on him to score all that much. So, you know, how, how do I rank him next to a Jalil Okafor, uh, a Wendell Carter even for that matter? You know, it, it's tough for me to figure out exactly where Mark Williams falls because I think on the offensive end, he's a little deficient to a lot of the other guys. But man, at the other end of, if, if half the game is defense, half is offense, half is defense, Mark Williams is about as good as it comes at half of basketball. It's very telling, Jason, that, Mark Williams is considered like a, a mid first round pick at the moment and does not at all have a three point shot is like, you know, all he can do more than 18 feet from the basket today is set screens. That's how good he is as a rim protector where there just aren't that many of those guys left in the NBA, but NBA teams seem very certain that, that Mark Williams is going to be effective. It is, it is an incredible story that from last year, I want to correct one uh, one thing that you said or, or, or push back on it, that it's not COVID necessarily that, that derailed the Blue Devils from advancing in the tournament last year as much as it was they didn't win enough games to get into the tournament last year. But um, but regardless, if Mark Williams had been, you know, this year's Mark Williams last year, Duke was making the NCAA tournament and it wasn't even going to be a question. Uh, so he was he was an enormous force for Duke this season. I was just looking this up. So Mark Williams ranks sixth all time in total career blocks for Duke players. Sixth in two years. In two and he seasons. only played two years. The guys ahead of, here's the rest of the list. Here's the rest of the list. Obviously, Sheldon Williams is like hilariously far away from everyone else. He had 422 blocks in his Duke career. The next guy was Shane Battier at 254. So Sheldon Williams has like, has like 80% more blocks than, than the guy in second place. Then Cherokee Parks, Mason Plumley. Christian Leitner, all these are four-year guys, and then Mark Williams. Uh, so, and and Mark Williams is is three block shots behind Christian Leitner, who was the starting center for Duke for four years. So, uh, an an incredible output. And and this year, I believe uh, he had he had uh, the most blocks in a season for anyone not named Sheldon Williams. So, exactly second yeah. best Williams uh, <laughs> at, at in in Duke, or maybe he's the third best Williams in Duke history, depending on where you put. Uh, Jay and and Sheldon ahead of him, uh, but an but an amazing uh, amazing run for him this season, and and as you said, one of the most incredible sort of examples of of improvement. Um, we saw that last year with Matthew Hurt at how much better he got from his freshman season to his sophomore season before he declared for the draft. Um, one other fun one that I remember, uh, not a big man, but the leap that Nolan Smith took from his sophomore year to his junior year to go from being basically a bench player to being an All-American type player. That was the kind of leap that, that Mark Williams took this year. Uh, ACC Defensive Player of the Year, National uh, First Team All-Defense, uh, just just an amazing, amazing progression for him. And, and I'll leave it with, with one more sort of hopeful uh, item about the Duke program is that 
part of the story of elevating Emil Jefferson from, uh, you know, from director of basketball ops to a full assistant coach was how much he's going to work with the big men. If, if Emil Jefferson had even, you know, a, a fraction of the uh, credit for the progression that Mark Williams made from his freshman season to his sophomore season, wow, is Duke going to be flush with good big men for years to come? Yeah, and when you look at Mark, the, the first thing that I'm always going to remember is just his personality, right? Like, he was one of the more beloved Duke players of the last few years. And it was because of the way he played. He always played with a smile on his face. He always had that just infectious energy. And on the defensive end, even with a smile on his face sometimes, he would just own everybody. I mean, there's we saw some times where he would block the shot, grab the rebound, outlet the pass, and then two seconds later, he's dunking it on the other end because he had that energy of going up and down the court. I think this, uh, just looking at his career, the fact that he was on a trajectory to be among, if not one of the best centers to ever roll through here is a testament to how far he's come. And I really appreciate that he, again, came, learned, grew as a player and matured as a player. Like Jason, we, we joke, but like we, we joke during the season that he was our best mid-range shooter because he was for a certain stretch of the of the season. He was that guy who could hit a 15-footer and no one else could. Um, but I think when it comes to him, he the sky's the limit for him. And, you know, I, I know he entered Duke with some expectations or at least a little bit of pressure uh, in the sense that he could look up in the stands or in the rafters and see his name, not Sheldon's name, his last name next to his sister's retired jersey um, and kind of look and know that there's a, a high level that you need to play at at Duke to be considered one of the greats. People are going to remember Mark Williams for who he was and not necessarily as the sister or as the brother of Elizabeth Williams. And I think that was a pressure that he had to overcome when he entered Duke. But just the way he grew from last year to this year, I think COVID did may not have robbed us of our season, but it robbed him of a chance to showcase himself and kind of have that breakout. He waited until this year to have that breakout role. Uh, and I think we don't get as far as we do this year without him. We, I mean, he had that buzzer beater uh, or mid, in midseason, but the way he played on the defensive end, we do not get to the Final Four without Mark Williams. And I think that's why I'm going to miss him the most. That man came and he played his butt off every single day and just grew and, and, and just really proud of his, his achievements and his trajectory. The sky's limits for him. Last thing to say about Mark Williams, the dude had an infectious smile. You love players who, when they come to the interview room, you know, whenever you see them being talking to the press and things like that, who seem like they're having a good time. And Mark Williams had a, a, a heck of a smile and, and, and a good social media game. I mean, the guy was, he was a pleasure to cover, uh, you know, as much as we are. The Duke Blue here. Planet, like interviews that they do after the game where the yeah. players actually do it. You always knew it was going to be a good interview when he had the mic. Like you always knew that it was going to be a fun video when he was on camera, he was able he to also, project that personality. He also has that little like shuffle step dance move that he does. Yes. And, uh, and, the and only seven footers have, yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> it, it doesn't seem that impressive until you remember that he's seven feet tall uh, and, and being able to do that, man, that's a, that, he's got some, he's got some nifty feet. So guys, the, the thing that Duke is really waiting for at this point is Trevor Keels and Jeremy Roach. And, and we've heard, some hints, uh, you know, not that we have sources, but people who have sources have said that, you know, really looks like Jeremy Roach is coming back. And, and it looks pretty likely that Trevor Keels is coming back as well. We, we don't know. And, and it, it wouldn't be like the world's biggest shock if Trevor Keels declared for the NBA draft. But, but the, the, the tea leaves are sort of indicating that he's leaning toward coming back, back to, to Durham. Donald, I'll come to you first. This is a really big deal for this Blue Devil team, isn't it? Hell yeah, it is. It'd be great to have Trevor Keels and Jeremy Roach come back and really solidify that, you know, Ark will be one of the best backcourts in the country. Uh, it would return for a second season, for a second year together uh, at Duke. That's great. And, and of course, we all talk about the chemistry that they have since they were high school teammates, but to transfer that to this level, I thought it transferred very well um, when they were on the court this year. And to have that for a full season next year, like it's going to be so great to have that leadership, to have uh, in the backcourt and just to have that, that presence and really for Duke to have that, you know, bull in the backcourt 
one guy that can distribute, one guy that can be a bull, I think would be terrific. He can obviously improve on a lot of different things. And really, I know we'll talk about this with Oscar Shibway a little bit later, but the NIL part of things like Trevor Keels, he doesn't need to go to, you know, go pro to get the money because if you think about it, guys, he's already in Theragun commercials nationwide and they were already showing on national TV. And so he can, you know, use that as well uh, to kind of build his brand. But I think for Duke's, you know, just to have the, the classes coming in and to have two veterans in the backcourt means a world of difference. We have seen teams in the NCAA tournament go very, very far when they have a veteran backcourt and have veteran leadership on the court playing a lot of minutes. That was ours this year with Wendell Moore. And now with these two coming back, we have it again next year. Assuming, Jason, that it is this uh, Roach and Keels returning and more leaving situation, got to assume next year that Jeremy Roach gets elevated to captain as, the, as a junior on the team. Joey Baker's going to be back, uh, but sort of the expectation is probably not going to play much. He may still be a captain as he was this season, but Jeremy Roach will be the, the on-court captain. I think that his leadership is enhanced by having Trevor Keels next to him. And as you look at the guys that Duke has coming in, sort of thinking about where they are in the recruiting rankings and, and their readiness for college ball, it's really lively Filipowski Whitehead seem like they are very ready to step into starting roles and be and be impact players from the jump. The rest of those guys probably project as bench players for this season. Um, you know, Mark Mitchell. Jayden, shoot. Yeah, hang on. I, I think the reason Mark Mitchell projects as a bench player is because Duke has because he's behind because <laughs> he's behind. Uh, you know, li- lively and Philip Philipowski sure. especially. Okay, but but regardless, but Mark yeah, Mitchell wouldn't be point wouldn't is still correct regardless of the of the Keel situation. But Jaden Shute doesn't project to be a to be a starter correct. Uh, at Duke in his freshman season. So the, the starting lineup looks a lot more solid when you've got junior Roach, sophomore Keels, and then these three-star freshmen next to them. Um, as much as, as we, we hype up the, you know, the next guy, the next Zion Williamson, the next Paulo Bancaro, you know, on down the line for Duke, uh, Duke teams are successful when they have veterans on the team. This year, it was Wendell Moore holding things together. It was Mark Williams making his leap as a sophomore. So I think it would be great for Duke if Roach and Keels came back. Um, I don't know if I'm if I'm worried about Trevor Keels' long-term pro prospects. He clearly has things that he needs to work on at the college level that that may improve his, his chances of getting drafted really high or being the focal point of an NBA team's development program. Because one of the... One of the downsides, I guess, for, for these players as the NBA has, has made, you know, a much bigger investment in, in the development program is that guys aren't necessarily the, the focal point anymore. If, you know, just because you, you end up in the G League doesn't mean that the team is, is focused on getting you to the next level. Um, Trevor Keels wants to be the focal point. He wants to be the future for an NBA team. And, and he definitely has stuff he can work on, especially at the offensive end next season. I think him coming back and being a second ball handler next to Jeremy Roach is going to help the offense tremendously. And, uh, and you know, so hopefully all of that comes together. I guess now I'm, I guess now I'm rooting for him to come back sort of before it was like, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's cool if these guys chase their dreams and go do what they want. Um, now I think I've talked myself into uh, it being a, a good thing for Trevor Keels to come back to Duke and, and be one of the leaders on the team next season. Well, Donald alluded to this, and I want to move the conversation um, to, to something tangential to Trevor Keels' specific decision, which is name, image, and likeness. And I think, Sam, the reason that you sort of changed your attitude on, oh, should the guys go <clears throat> to the NBA and, and chase the money or should they come back to school? Uh, I, I think there's, there's now an ability to chase the money, so to speak, and, and remain at the college level. And for someone like Trevor Keels, he, he, you know, everyone sees that there are things he can improve in his game, probably specifically his outside shooting, that would really help his draft stock which is, of course, a smart financial move. But returning to school is not the risk that it once was because Trevor Keels is going to get paid. Duke has not been really public. I've mentioned this before. Duke has not been in one of these schools that's talking a lot about what guys are making in name, image, and likeness. But I guarantee you that Duke has put a very, very sizable, I I say Duke, people associated with Duke you know, the, John Shire and, and the athletic department can't do this on their own. <laughs> there are certain rules, but people associated with Duke University, I think, have probably put a very, very sizable 
offer on the table for Trevor Keels. I don't know that it's a million dollars, but I would not be at all surprised to find out that it's a million dollars. And if we're going to talk about name, image, and likeness, we got to talk about Oscar Shibway of Kentucky, the national player of the year. We, we, we saw him. Uh, dude was an absolute rebounding machine, uh, unlike, I think, just about anything we've seen in college basketball in many, many, many years. Oscar Shibway is returning to Kentucky, and all the reports are is that he's going to make $2 million in name, image, and likeness opportunities, so to speak, uh, in, in this next year at Kentucky. And, and I'll tell you something, I don't think he's being underpaid. Uh, Two million, you know, for national player of the year, sounds right to me. So uh, th th this, this name image likeness is exploding. We're getting more and more details. The Athletic had a story about college football recruits, like not five-star recruits, like four-star and three-star recruits getting hundreds of thousands of dollars. A, a four-star recruit, four-star wide receiver getting a million-dollar deal over several years. It was over several years, but still huge money for completely unproven players. It's, it is clear that this is moving fast, and it is changing the entire way that recruiting and retaining players works. Donald. And when you talk about Oscar Shibway, you mentioned that $2 million in estimated earnings that he would make this coming season for staying in college. If you think about the NBA draft and the rookie pay scale, he'd have to be the 21st pick in the draft to be guaranteed exactly. to make more money than he would from NIL next year. So that's a growing thing. And, and honestly, for us, I know, you know, Sam, you're entering the old group of people. You're like, you're, you're, you're getting both 30, right? But like the, for, for the younger kids, social media presence is becoming more of a thing. And that brand that they grow on social media is only going to help players decide to stay in college more than one or two years because of the fact that they can maximize that revenue through their social media brands that they have already built. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, we've talked about uh, a couple of players next year who have, you know, TikTok and Instagram followers in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And, and Jared uh, McCain, Jared McCain is a yeah. huge TikTok star. <laughs> right. And he can maximize that to his advantage. He doesn't have to be a five-star talent to do that. You just have to be a five-star personality on social media for that to happen. So I think it, it, that may, and again, like I said, you know, Trevor Keels is in Therabody commercials and we saw them throughout the NCAA tournament. And so even with that, you know, if he's getting money for that, like he can get whatever he wants next year to stay at Duke again, maximize that brand machine that is Duke blue planet. And he's able to make what he needs to do to justify staying in college. And I think this is going to be a big part of the conversation for players as they make these decisions. And I think that's why you're seeing some more players stay. So I want to be clear about something. And Donald, I know you understand this, but I want everyone out there to understand this. When we talk about name, image, and likeness, when we talk about these kind of figures being thrown around $2 million for Oscar Shibway, certainly hundreds of thousands of dollars to a number of players on the Duke roster, it is not necessarily for them to advertise things on their social media feed. For the most part, these are what are called collectives, groups of boosters, groups of you know, people who support different schools. And they arrange to funnel this money to the players for a variety of different reasons. Sometimes it's for public advertising kind of things, but for the most part, it's just kind of a, I mean, there's no way to describe like it. Like a stipend. This. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically a, you play basketball for us, you play football for us, and, and we'll just give you this money. You know, hey, and we'd love it if, you know, every so often you'd, um, you know, have dinner with a, with some boosters or someone like that, or, you know, you know, perhaps there, there are things where you're going to advertise for a, a local business or something, but for the most part, this is just paying these players to, to, to play the sport. I want to be clear, nothing wrong with that. That should have been going on for a long, long time. And, and I'm, I'm perfectly fine with this continuing to happen. And, and like I've said again, like I've said before, and I want to say again, Duke, Duke is kicking butt at this. There are some schools that are not really into this thing. I think even though Duke is not talking about it, Duke is, there's just no way that Duke is recruiting the way they are. There's no way that Duke is bringing back players like Trevor Keels and Jeremy Roach without having a very, very robust name, image, and likeness thing going on. I'm going to throw out just a random figure. I would not be at all surprised if Duke is providing upwards of four, maybe $5 million dollars to Duke basketball players next year to, to be a part of this team. And again, 
they deserve it. In fact, my bet is those kind of payrolls are going to be doing nothing but going up, up, up in, in coming years. Because if you compare it to like the NBA, to, to pro contracts, you're getting these players for cheap when you think about how much, uh, you know, how much they're doing in terms of driving ticket sales and television revenue. Sam, anything on all this? No, I think you guys, you guys covered it. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm uh, excited, curious, and excited to, uh, to see where all of this goes and, and agree that it's, I think it's a net good for college basketball to have the, you know, the, these, these players who might be marginal NBA draft picks uh, coming back to school. Like how exciting would it have been to have Matthew Hurt on this team this season or, or, you know, going back and back and back. There are all kinds of guys, DJ Stewart. Now, if we get the, if DJ Stewart comes back, maybe Trevor Keels doesn't come, et cetera, et cetera. But uh but but cool if if Duke and Kentucky and all these and all these big time programs can hang on to players and I I don't want to linger too long on this topic but man UNC it feels like is is bringing back nearly their whole team um, partially yep. perhaps because guys like Caleb Love and Armando Baycott uh, these guys can can make a a, a decent amount of money uh, being stars at UNC uh, relative to where they're projected to go uh, in the NBA draft. Yeah, and uh, speaking of the NBA, we're going to be covering that when we come back from the commercial break in just a moment. Dukies in the NBA, Dukies in the NBA playoffs, kicking butt. That story, stick with us. All right, we're back from the commercial break. And before we get to the Dukies and the NBA playoffs, there is one comings and goings that we do want to address very quickly. Coach K's grandson, Michael Savarino, has announced that he is entering the transfer portal. Presumably, this means his Duke career is over and that he's going to be finding a new school to go to. It is worth noting that he was at Duke for three years. And thanks to summer school classes, AP credits, and all that other kind of stuff, uh, it appears he will finish up his Duke degree. He will be a grad transfer. Not that that matters anymore because you can be instantly eligible whether you're a grad transfer or not. Donald, come to you first. Obviously not a guy who played a lot and the attraction of playing for his grandfather is no longer on the table. Uh, but, you know, we're, we'll, we'll, we'll miss Severino, won't we? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's funny, um, he was actually the second guy to announce that he was departing Duke. Um, he announced like shortly after uh, Mark Williams declared and before Paulo that he was going to be entering the transfer portal. And I think it, in a way it makes sense. As you mentioned, he, he, you know, he was at Duke mainly to play for coach K his grandfather. And now that that is done, he's able to go and try and seek out some playing time. It, it's not like he's going to go uh, to a big school. Although I will, I will note that it was very funny. Armando Baycott uh, on Twitter kind of said, Hey, yo, Savarino, will come pull up baby. Like, um, that, so I thought that was pretty funny on, on Baycott's part for him to try and recruit coach K's grandson to go to UNC ladies and gentlemen, that's not happening. Um, but he's probably going to be going to a smaller school, but as you mentioned, Jason, he's going to graduate as a blue devil. He will forever be a part of the blue devil family in more ways than one. And he's going to go and continue his playing career and hopefully get some playing time down the road. So best of luck to him. I just hope for Michael Savarino's sake that he is ready for the taunting that he is going to receive at his new school, not by the other kids on campus, but by the guys on his team. Uh, there is going to be a lot of, Oh, did, did coach K teach you how to do this? And that, 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 that. So um, I, I don't know if he's like, like how big or small he's, he's looking to go uh, as far as like, does he want, you know, to, to go to another program where he might come off the bench? Is he trying to go to a, a much smaller program where he'd be like a starter and a star, but, uh, but, but I assure you, he will get made fun of incessantly for being coach K's grandson. I'm sure that he can take it. Uh, he's been in, he's more or less been in the spotlight his whole life, given that he's part of that, that family, but, um, yeah, uh, best of luck to him and, uh, hope that, you know, that all of his, uh, all his troubles from this season have been, uh, sorted out. I know that we had sort of stopped talking about it, uh, once he, once he came back to the team from his brief suspension, but, um, you know, good, good, good luck to Michael Savarino. And it's a fresh start for him. Right. Like, I mean, exactly. if you think about it, like it, he was kind of insulated from that, from a lot of things, but also the pressure was accentuated in other ways because he played at Duke because he played under his grandfather. Now he doesn't have to worry about that. He can go and kind of start his own path and start a fresh course. 
uh, for the rest of his life. And, and, you know, I think that's great for him. So uh, I think that if he has to leave, if you think about it, he's never left home. He's been in Durham his entire life. So for him to be able to leave home um, and, and kind of go and get that experience that we all had of leaving home and going to a new environment with new people and, you know, just new challenges. I think that's great for anybody, um, especially Michael Zavarino. You know, the thing I'll say about him is I actually think he, he turned himself into uh, a, a decent little player in, in the three years that he played uh, one year of those red shirting, but the three years he got in practice um, playing against future NBA players, he, he improved a, a, a ton. I mean, this guy, when he was at Durham high school, I think it's Durham High School, whatever, you know, wherever he played um, growing up. It, he, he Durham was, Academy. Durham Academy, thank you. He didn't even average double double digit figures as a senior. You know, he was he was an okay player, but he was not someone who would have necessarily gotten a look, you know, even to be a walk-on at a place like Duke if, if it hadn't been for who his grandfather is. But he then took advantage of that opportunity and, and turned into, we talk about, you know, walk-ons, total points. He scored a lot of points this year for a walk-on a, a lot more than more than most walk-ons do in their entire career that he scored in, in just this one season. And I'm going to be very interested in seeing where he goes. I, I, I'm not sure he's going to go to a division one program. I, you know, I think he would, if he wants to get playing time, he would have to go pretty far down division one, um, maybe to a, maybe even to a lower tier Ivy kind of school. Um, but I think he could go like the division three route. There are a number of, of really good academic schools that play division three basketball. Uh, and I think that he, he may find one of those that has a, a graduate program that he really likes and he could make a real difference at one of those programs. So I'm, I'm wishing him all the best. Do you think, and, and again, I, after, after all I just said about leaving home and, and experiencing new challenges away from home, it's funny. I look down the road in North Carolina at two programs that, Maybe he has connections with um, one would be Davidson uh, because Bates Jones and he has that connection. I know that's kind of a bigger school than he would get a lot of playing time in. But Elon, I mean, Mike Schrocki is a good friend of the, of, of the program. He's now back at Duke. He's a good friend of the family. And probably if he wants to go somewhere that's still D1, but still kind of competitive, I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up 45 minutes down the road. I, I, my bet is if he's a guy who wants to go out and experience the world, he wants to get out of the state of North Carolina. <laughs> and, and, I, uh, you know, like I said, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't think, I don't think he, he could be much more than a pretty deep in the rotation player at, at Davidson. Davidson's a, a very good program for, for a mid-major. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's put that aside. And I want to move on to guys who've left Duke and moved on to the next level in a very, very big way. Uh, there were a number of Dukies making a, a, a big name for themselves in the NBA playoffs over the past several past several days that the playoffs have begun gentlemen i'll start with this question jason tatum is, is there a case that jason tatum is a first team all nba player at this point he looks darn close to it he he may be one of the five best players in the nba right now he has so far outplayed kevin durant in that series donald uh yes the the short answer is yes the the long answer is no because deuce tatum is right there with him um, because uh, Deuce Tatum is probably one of the more beloved Celtics uh, in recent memory. Uh, but I, I, I say that all aside, but Jason Tatum is that dude. Like he's been that dude for most of the season and he has stepped it up somehow to another level uh, early on in these playoffs. And I mean, if the Celtics go far, it's going to be because Jason Tatum just put them, put the whole team on his back and put the whole city on his back and carried him that far. Um, but I mean, Sam, like, I, you live in Boston. Is that the, is that the growing sentiment amongst fans in town that Jason Tatum is just the guy that's going to will this team to whatever he wants them to do? Oh yeah. Celtics fans are, are over the moon about Jason Tatum. And I know that, you know, the, the, the Nets had to, had to stumble a little bit into the playoffs here, but there's sort of no question that, that the Nets, regardless of their record are considered one of the best teams in the NBA. They've got, they still have Kevin Durant and Kevin Durant has not been effective at all. Uh, against the Celtics in in large part because Jason Tatum has been has been part of the neutralizing force against him and uh, and and you really have to admire the the progress that he's made so uh, cool that that he has had such an impact uh, it seems like the Celtics after a big comeback last night are going to be cruising into the second round we hope uh, you, you know obviously sad to see a 
to see uh, Kyrie and and Seth Curry uh, get knocked out. But um, man, the Celtics uh, Celtics look really strong in the second half. And, and Tatum um, Tatum's had the has had big moments in that in the first game. He had the he had the game winner um, and had a lot of big plays down the stretch last night for Boston. That I said I was I was watching at the Red Sox game. I, I, I don't know that you should count out the Nets just yet. Uh, they 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 led for much of that game last night, even though, frankly, both Kyrie and Kevin Durant did not play all that well. What a um, wild, what a wild game it was last it, night. It, it was a, it was a they've crazy had, game. That, they've the, had the some first wild moments that whole series. Yeah, that, that, that's the first two games in that series. I mean, look, the Nets could have easily won game one if it wasn't for Jason Tatum hitting a spinning layup over Kyrie, uh, literally with half a second left on the clock, not even. I mean, that's one of the, one of the great buzzer beaters that you'll see. And uh, Kyrie had Kyrie was amazing in game one. He was he was not good in game two. The, the, the Nets probably need him to be a little more consistent, but it, it, it's a great showcase of, of Duke players going on. There are other Duke. He's playing really well. Guys, Brandon Ingram. I mean, oh, my goodness. The New Orleans Pelicans are one of the major stories of these playoffs. And Brandon Ingram has been absolutely fabulous. Beautiful. The, the man, the man is just playing beautiful basketball. And again, we saw flashes of this throughout the season. He's been that guy that's been steady, just behind the scenes, trying to grind it. And again, get these, get these Pelicans to the playoffs. But I, it is hard to say this in like what it's, I believe this is sixth year um, in the NBA at this point. It's hard to say that he's having a breakout playoffs, but he kind of is because he's been on teams that where he either is not the the focal point of the offense when he was with the Lakers or, you know, he's on a team that's just not good enough to make the playoffs in the case of the Pelicans the last couple of years. So I think for him, he's using this opportunity to his advantage and he's showing why he can be one of the, of course, he's probably not one of the top 10 players in the NBA, but he's right there in that next set of players, the way he's been playing down the stretch uh, in the regular season and in these playoffs. And if you and if making it a competitive series against the the Suns, which is yeah. impressive because the Suns are 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 built different and uh, pretty cool to see uh, to see Ingram coming on strong. That's a guy who you know Donald was saying kind of took him a few years to to find his footing. We knew he was talented, um, but had to change teams. Um, has had has, has sort of been stuck in weird roster constructions a few times. And and now it feels like he's really he's really breaking out. And and if it wasn't for Tatum. Uh, taking so much of the spotlight away from him from a Duke perspective, we'd be saying that Brandon Ingram was, was maybe the best uh, Duke guy in the NBA. Well, I, I'll tell you something. Did you see the game that they beat Phoenix? He scores, Brandon Ingram scores 37 points on only 21 shots, three of three from three point range, 11 rebounds and nine assists. He's one assist away from putting up a triple double in the playoffs, playing for the number eight seed, taking home court advantage away from the number one seed. I mean, that's a wow. That's that's huge. And for the Pelicans to be doing what they're doing without Zion Williamson. And, and there's there's like these little whispers, this little talk that maybe like Zion supposedly is is working out in practice and stuff. You know, it's possible if, if they somehow upset Phoenix, it is I guess it's possible that they try and bring Zion back. I think it's pretty unlikely, but but they man, that, team, those- that seems exciting for next year they have quelled those rumors about Zion coming back this year. They've, I mean, he's been, he's been participating in some warmup lines and some shoot rounds and uh, he's definitely played very, very well uh, or looks like he's on the verge of coming back, but they've quelled those rumors of him coming back. But I will say this, you're right next year. They're going to be a monster and add to that. They have CJ McCollum who, when they tr- got him via trade, he was supposed to be the star and Brandon Ingram was like, this is my team. He's playing like this is his team. I think that's good for the Pelicans. Hey, and just really quick, I also want to mention Gary Trent Jr. is is playing really good ball for the Toronto Raptors. Um, he had 24 points last night, played 45 minutes. He was sick earlier in the series against Philadelphia, um, but he's he's definitely showing himself to be a a you know really significant part of that of that of a pretty good Toronto team. Sadly, it looks like they're probably not going to they're not going to be around much longer because Philly leads three nothing in that series. Anything else on the NBA, gentlemen, or are we ready to wrap it all up? I'm getting, I'm getting thumbs up from Wrap both it of up. you. Wrap it yeah. up, B. <laughs> so that's going to do it for this episode of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. I am Jason. He is Donald and he is Sam. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back probably this weekend 
to talk more about whatever decisions come down because Saturday, I believe, is the deadline for NBA draft decisions. We still have a couple dookies. Sunday. It's Sunday. Oh, it's Sunday. Night Sunday. Whichever yep. day it is, it's this weekend. And we'll be back after that happens to, to give you guys all the news about which guys are coming back for Duke and which guys are leaving for Duke. We, as we said, we really hope, we think perhaps that Duke is going to get the Paul the Fourth backcourt back for one more season, which would be a, a very, very Paul, big deal. Paul the Sixth. Paul the Sixth. Six. Fourth, Sixth. Shout out. There's a V and an I in there. Wherever they are, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, the V-I. They're, they're flipped around. <laughs> Paul, Paul the Sixth, they, sorry. They, I should know I, uh, folks, folks in the D.C. area do refer to it as PVI. PVI, so, yeah. PVI. See, I'm the one non-D.C. guy. Why am I doing this? See, Sam, you got Sam, host the podcast for me, please. Yo. <laughs> Yo, shout out, <laughs> shout out to DC, shout, shout out to, to PBI in the 703. I okay. love it. I love it. Okay, that's it. DBR podcast in the books. Duke Band, play us out. Take us home. Goodbye. Should, when, when do I issue a correction about about who won national championships in the 1980s. Do you want me to do that at the end or do you want me to do that right after the break? Oh, what year was Villanova? We, uh, so Villanova did win it in 85. Um, but- Because uh, 84 Don- was Georgetown, 85 was Villanova. Yeah, but Donald, Donald mentioned- Donald He mentioned said Vice Lama it was Georgetown that they beat. Georgetown- Oh, that's yeah, my, yeah, yeah, beat, my bad. That's Georgetown right. beat Vice Lama Jamma. Correct, yes. In 84. Um, so they won the- uh, Houston didn't win the title, right? Uh, right. They never State won, won the no, title. They, did. they never did. In Carolina, then Georgetown. Um, so Houston did not did not win any of those championships. Okay, so here's what we'll do: we'll put the corrections at the end. Okay, I'll, there we go. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. At, it'll be a post credit scene. And then Villanova did beat Georgetown in uh, in '85. Right. I right. know. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. That was that was that's the main correction do you, here. Do you guys remember that? <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm. That's the game I was talking about that I remembered. Yeah. I vividly, yeah. Ed Pinckney was, uh, was, was the star for Villanova. A guy named Ed Pinckney was, uh, he was a big man. He was a power forward. And he was awesome in that game. Um, although they had a couple guards. I uh, can't remember the guy's name now. They had a couple guards who weren't expected to be as good as they were. And they were unreal in that national championship game. Villanova shot like, like 75% from the field in that game. Just an unreal number. You just never see teams do what they did. They had, I'm going to say Harold Presley. They had a guy, I haven't looked any of this up. They had a guy who was just draining long distance shots. There wasn't really a three-pointer back then, but this dude was there just wasn't one. But this dude there was wasn't draining long distance shots to beat Georgetown. It was, it was crazy. They were a huge under, I mean, a huge underdog. They were the eight seed. They were the, they were the, until I think what UConn in 2014, they were the, lowest yeah. seed to win yeah so are we, are we still doing the show or are we just doing that? <laughs> yeah that's your post credit right there, my post right, credit there. right there right <laughs>